Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Matt Argusinger from MDP and Motley Fool Rule Breakers, Simon Erickson. And from Motley Fool Funds, Brian Hinman. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Yo, yo, hey, Chris. Chris. We've got the latest on tech stocks, the Eurozone, and the business of online dating. We will dip into the Fool mailbag, and as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with online retail. The biggest IPO of 2014 was Alibaba, the Chinese e-commerce giant that has quickly become one of the largest public companies in the world. Part of the optimism for the business was the belief that Alibaba would take on e-commerce companies based here in the U.S. But this week, the company announced it is selling its American subsidiary, Eleven Main, having reportedly failed to gain traction in the market. Maddie, I'll start with you. This is this is kind of surprising, isn't it? When you consider the deep pockets that this company has, that after basically a year, they pulled the plug. I am glad we're leading with this story because to me it's a big story, but it didn't really get a lot of play in the mainstream media. I think it was on like page three of one of the inside sections of the Wall Street Journal over the week. Uh, but yeah, this was—I mean—a year ago, Alibaba comes public. The world's all a Twitter about how this company is going to. That's my new word. All a Twitter. Nice. Anyway, nice. You know, they're—they're going to—you know—punch punch Amazon in the gut, elbow eBay in the head, uh, and, and really kind of bite into U.S. e-commerce. But here we are, less than a year later. And they're closing down or selling their their U.S. Uh, uh, business to consumer uh, retail operation, and so it was surprising to me. And I think you saw Amazon, eBay uh, rally this week, and I think for good reason. This is a, a good sign. And I don't think any of us around the table thought, really thought, that Alibaba was going to come in and push Amazon around. I think we were all pretty solid on that point, and that's and that's what's proven out. It's that uh, you know certainly at least in the U.S. consumer business, Alibaba is probably not going to be a real big player very soon. Um, and I think that's what's happened here. Yeah, Brian, I, to Maddie's point, I don't think any of us actually thought they'd really push Amazon around. But by the same token, I don't think any of us thought they would pull the plug this quickly. No, definitely not. I mean, uh, most Chinese companies that I follow, profits are really secondary, tertiary, even further down the list than that. They just don't care about making money all that much right away. And so to pull the plug this early on and not you know, sort of play the let's get bigger, grow, grow, grow game is a real shocker from a Chinese company. Uh, when you look at Alibaba, Maddie, is it a stock that interests you now that they are, well, arguably more focused on their own markets? Uh, you can't ignore a company that controls 80% of e-commerce in China in the world's you know biggest future online market uh, by by many leaps and bounds. I I just I'm I'm not I'm not so excited about it because they have a lot of things going on. They're making a lot of investments in the entertainment space and and B2B businesses, and so it's kind of hard to get on a handle on the business. Um, I would say the one I'm most excited about is also a company that rallied this week is Mercado Libre. You know, the leading e-commerce company in Latin America. They also rallied this week on the idea that, you know, that Alibaba wasn't going to come into their turf. Um, so again, I'm I'm much more excited about those companies that are really dominating their markets. Uh, so Amazon, Mercado Libre, I get a lot more excited about them before Alibaba. Well, and and to put 
put an even finer point on it. It's not like Alibaba shares tanked this week on this news, but they did fall. And as you said, Amazon, eBay, Mercado Libre, all jumping on the fact that uh, a a very big competitor has decided to pick up stakes. That's right. Amberella makes semiconductor chips for cameras, and the stock has more than tripled over the past year. But shares got whacked on Monday after Citron Research issued a report entitled, and I'm quoting here, The Ridiculousness of Amberella. Simon, this is a company that you know a little bit. Does Citron have a point? Um, I don't think so, Chris. I'm not too phased by this report, even though that we saw a lot of volatility in the stock this week. We've seen Citron go after a couple of rule breakers before they went over went after Bank of the Internet um, last year, and then also GoPro earlier. Um, so this is this is not our first rodeo with with them uh, putting out a bearish report. But you know, Amberella is kind of a company that is kind of the perfect selection for them to go after. Uh, the reason I say that is there's a couple of reasons. First of all, its market cap is still relatively small, about $3 billion market cap right now. The shares had been on fire before the report up about 300% over the last 12 months. So it's been, you know, a lot of bullish sentiment in this company. But then also, it's about 44% of the shares are held in the public market. They're not institutionally or held by insiders. So you put all of those together, that's kind of the perfect storm for volatility to come from a public facing report like Citron released. When you think about the fact that they are in some ways tied to GoPro because they make chips for GoPro is is there a danger that they are commoditized a little bit I don't think so. Uh, the reason I say that is these high-definition codecs, they're making kind of the systems on a chip that go into high-definition video, which the first flavor of that that we've seen a win from has been action sports cameras. These guys base jumping and putting videos up um, of all the crazy, you know, gnarly stuff they're doing out there. But there's even bigger markets than that that I don't even think we've scratched the surface of. Uh, the, the first smart drones are taking off that actually have Amberella's chips in there. And then there's also a really big market in automotive as well. So I think that right now the story is about GoPro, but there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, I want to be the guy who stands up for Citron in this situation because I'm, I'm, I'm the guy at the table who actually does short stocks. And so I pay attention when someone is waving the red flags at any company, be it you know a rule breaker or a more staid, steady company. Uh, I pay attention to what they say because oftentimes they're smart. But I got to agree with Simon on this one. The report put out by Citron was thin. There was not a lot of meat on the bones. Uh, and I think it is pointing investors in the right directions of some of risks that they need to get their hands around. Uh, but the report itself was a bit more sensational than substantial. And uh, in this case, I think there's more work to be done. Well, anytime you can throw the word ridiculousness into the headline. <laughs> in the title. You're, you're going to raise some eyebrows. Netflix in the news this week, not because of new programming or the next season of House of Cards. The company announced a seven-for-one stock split. And Brian, shares jumped uh, when the market opened on Wednesday, but they have since settled back down, which tells me that maybe, possibly, there's some sanity around the idea of stock splits. No. no. <laughs> I'm being ridiculous. I'm being Don't too... be silly. I mean, what's, what's incredible to me about this one is shares already jumped on the idea of a share split back when they had their board meeting and put into action uh, what they needed to sort of present to the board in order to do this. So shares reacted positively once already. Then it actually, the news came out that it was actually happening and they jumped again. I think the reason shares fell back to earth was because news came out that Carl Icahn was. Uh, was selling out and had sold out of his Netflix stake. So, given how 
great he was at timing on uh, his entry point, uh, about less than $100, I think it was around 80 uh, when he sort of started banging the table. Uh, him saying, see ya, thank you for and taking my victory lap at 600 or so, uh, I think that investors were listening to that. Yeah, Matty, whatever you think of Carl Icahn, you've got to give it to, up for him on this one, because he absolutely called this right. Right. Something like a $1.6 or $1.7 billion profit he made on Netflix. And I, I have to, you know, Carl Icahn was always the guy, I mean, if you go back five or six years ago, he was the agitator guy. You, you, the stocks really didn't move on on news. Now, he'll, he'll tweet something out, and the stock will move. It's amazing the amount of gravitas the guy has now. Nike wrapped up its fiscal year in style. Fourth quarter profits came in higher than expected, and sales for the quarter came in at $7.8 billion. Matty, that is a whole lot of swoosh. Sure is. Uh, you know, there was, I went through the report, and there's just nothing that you don't like about what Nike did the past quarter, the past fiscal year. You know, Q4 revenue was up 13% on a currency neutral basis, earnings per share up 26%. Helped a little bit about a lot of buybacks they've been doing, but gross margin was up. Their basketball business was up 21% uh, revenue-wise in fiscal 2015 to four billion. And of course, we know they just signed a new long-term deal with the NBA that starts next year. I mean, not, the NBA's you know obviously just had a great you know championship series. It's that that league's really taken off. Their women's business was up 20% to six billion. I think Nike's been spending a lot there over the past few years, and that seems like it's really been paying off. Um, the only dark spot I could see in the report was their emerging market segment. Uh, revenue was actually down there uh, in the quarter. Um, and they say, well, it's because last year we had the Men's World Cup build up, and so year over year gets a little uh, dicey. But I just think that that is one area where I, I was surprised to see some weakness. I think there's going to be strength there. Uh, the stock has been an absolute monster. The business is wonderful. I just think now at 30 times earnings with a company like Nike, which is probably going to grow in the high single digits, maybe low double digits uh, long term, starts to get a little pricey for me. But love the business. It does. And overall, it's closing in on a market cap of $100 billion. Remarkable. It's not quite there. As you said, an amazing run. And yet, when you, when you look at their growth in China, which is not spectacular, but has been relatively solid, that tells me that no, it's not going to double overnight from here. But it, it, it does seem like this is one that still has some runway. Oh, I believe it. so. And, and basketball in particular is very, very popular in China, and that's where Nike is spending a lot of their money. So, going to pay yeah, off. Yeah, Chris, I think more so than the market cap size. What would scare me is if they didn't manage their brand well and they overextended their brand. And I, you just don't get the sense that Nike is doing that. They're just so smart about how they've grown their product lines. They've shrunk individual product. Uh, product lines down to create artificial demand and just launched more products. I mean, so they've been so smart about how they've grown into that near hundred, you know, hundred billion dollar market cap valuation that they're doing it right. Coming up, we've got another wardrobe malfunction, and this one could get expensive. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Matt Argusinger, Simon Erickson, and Brian Hinman. You may not be familiar with Interactive Corp, but chances are you have contributed to this company's revenue stream without even realizing it. That is because IAC is the parent company of more than 150 websites, brands, and products, including Dictionary.com, College Humor, and the Princeton Review. Shares of IAC hit an all-time high this week on the news that it is spinning off its online dating business, The Match Group, which consists of Match.com, Tinder, and OkCupid. Uh, Simon, all of us around the table are married, so uh, probably just as well we don't have experience with these businesses. But uh, how bullish should we be about online dating? Because you look at what happened with IAC stock, 
people are pretty excited for this IPO coming later this year. Look, Chris, it's a hot market. Okay, what can we say? This is a hot market for hooking up online. Uh, this is, like you said, this is what Interactive does. They have been around for about 20 years, and they've created now seven, seven different publicly traded companies with a combined market cap between those of $44 billion. So, they just kind of went and did a land grab of the internet and then spun a lot of these companies off. Not too shocking to see them doing it again. Um, with regards to your question, I, I, I don't know a whole lot about this space, but I am a little bit hesitant about the staying power of something like a, uh, a Tinder or an OkCupid or a Match.com. Now, as you said, married guy, this is not my forte, right? but it seems like there's a little bit of hype in a hot IPO market for these right now. I think they're going out and they're getting cash at the right time. I agree with that. I would say there's something wrong with a business model where your most successful customers are the ones that don't come back. <laughs> so it's I look at Match.com and other things and other sites like that, and I just wonder who are they appealing to. It's like the, the people that are kind of mid, you know, the people on the low end who never get any matches. They they just they get depressed and don't come back. And the people that are really successful and find their true love never come back. So it's like the mid tier people who constantly are dating and kind of falling in and out with people and, and keep coming back. But it's just it's bizarre. I do think it's interesting. Also, they're keeping the Princeton Review part of the the match sub segment within the company. They're they're just spinning off these three sites. What I've seen. So I think that they're really just kind of trying to raise money on the online dating part of this, or keeping those that have more staying power, perhaps. Well, to this point, it's been successful. I mean, despite the number of brands they have under the parent company, about 30% of their revenue comes from those three. So, it may just be a matter of time. And, Matty, we were talking before about Carl Icahn. Kind of got to give it up to Barry Diller, as well, who's the chairman at at IAC, because his track record over the last 20 years, I mean, he's, he's done this kind of thing before and done it well. Yeah, I mean, it's the Brian was saying before, you know, it's, it's the idea of you you kind of latch onto these brands early on. You kind of repackage them, rebrand them, and spin them out, or, or you know, uh, do uh, expand their marketplaces. And the, the value created by Barry Diller has been sensational. Yeah, I think we need to remember too that uh, this is a global business. I mean, we follow a company in asset management called Genuine, uh, and they were just taken private, um, and the. They had to raise the the buyout price um, considerably from what was originally offered because this is a pretty good business. And you know, while Matt was making the point that hey, if they're successful, you lose your customers. Let's be honest, most you know relationships fail and fail miserably. Often go down in a blaze of, of <laughs> there glory. You, there you go. And so you See? want that you want that immediate redemption. So you're going to get right back up on the horse. See, so, we're, so we're around this table. We're like the lucky ones. We're just the, the, the I don't know. We're, the, we're not the normal. Yeah. I mean, if if there is a business that rivals coffee, uh, I think in terms of like addiction and repeat business, this is the one. This is the one I want to sign up for. <laughs> not that I want to sign up for. Sorry, honey. What I meant was what I want to stand behind with an investment. Let's there. move along before right. we really get in trouble with our respective wives. The last time Lululemon Athletica had a major recall, it was because their signature yoga pants were made of materials so sheer that you could see through them. Now Lululemon is recalling more than 300,000 women's tops because the elastic drawstrings have a hard tip that have snapped back and caused facial injuries on at least several people. Uh, Matty, Did you get that from the Onion? Uh, you know, <laughs> it seriously it, reads like it's bad. a funny story until you start looking at the numbers. These tops retail for anywhere from seventy-five to two hundred fifty dollars. This is going to cost Lululemon. Well, apparently, so apparently, seven people in North America have been injured 
But and I don't even know what that means. Is that a bruise or is that like a, my eye got poked out? But I guess you, you pull too hard on these these drawstrings and it snaps back, hits you in the neck, hits you in the face. I mean, to me that's just a bad day. But apparently, you know, Lulu's taking this seriously. I mean, as they should after sort of the two years ago when they had the other incident. So yeah, it's a big recall. Apparently, if you own one of these, if you bought between 2008 and 2014, you can go to any Lululemon store. They'll replace, they'll replace the draw cord for you. Um, and, you know, kudos to the company, I guess, to getting kind of really in front of this business. I mean, the stock price wasn't really affected at all this past week. And I think that's a sign that, you know, management realizes this apparel matters. And if, if something's wrong with it, they're going to fix it right away. Lululemon's an interesting one right now because they're trying to diversify their product line. Outside of, you know, the black yoga pants they made a name for themselves with. They've got this Ango line. You've got the sundress line. You've got the men's line with the ABC shorts, you know, out there. Which is great, but there's some supply challenges with doing stuff like that. You've got inventory concerns. You've got product quality concerns of you know snapping elastic bands, injuring people, and you've stuff. got the delays in the West Coast ports. Delays mm-hmm. in the West Coast. I mean, it's it's an interesting company right now because I can see where they're trying to go with this, but we're seeing some of those growing pain headaches with the company that's trying to expand its. Well, it's, line. And, but the weird thing is too, we were talking about Nike earlier, and Nike Under Armour. They've been selling apparel for decades, and I've never you've never really hear about. Wardrobe malfunctions with athletic wear, except when it comes to Lululemon. I don't know why that is, but it's it's just. Yeah, an I hear this story and I think Lululemon is out of toes. Here's what I mean by that: this company has shot itself in the foot so many times, <laughs> and they just keep on trucking. So that says something about brand resilience. Res- resiliency. There. Well, and point. when you look at the stock up around sixty-five percent over the last year, um, you know they they had a nice run. So maybe it was inevitable that they were going to have one of these snafus again. <laughs> radio at fool.com is our email address. That's radio at fool.com. Question from Troy Adamson in Vancouver, who writes: What part should high yield stocks play in someone's portfolio? On every episode of your show, you say, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. But I did the opposite, and I bought <laughs> shares of Apollo <laughs> Investment Group based solely on what I heard on an episode of your Market Foolery podcast. I've been enjoying a 10% yield, which is paid out in the form of additional shares, which is good for me as a Canadian, as there are no currency conversion issues. But I also know that companies could cut their dividend at any time. Uh, Brian, I'm curious what you think regarding the role that high-yield stocks should play in anyone's portfolio. But first, I got to say, Troy, what are you doing? Tisk, I don't know. Tisk, I mean, Troy. we love that you listen. Keep listening. Tell your friends to listen. But do not buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear on this show. Okay, Brian? Tisk, tisk, Troy. <laughs> Come on. All right. Well, so so here's the, here's the, uh, the academics and theory behind all of this. Broadly speaking, returns come from three sources. They come from dividend yield, uh, they come from earnings growth, and they come from changes in valuation. And we don't really care where in those three buckets we get our return, so long as we get the return. A high yield stock is going to get its return primarily from that dividend piece. And so, as long as the dividend is safe, it can it can play you know that can play a decent role in your portfolio. But the bigger picture is. You shouldn't care. You should be caring about how certain that payment is. Radio at fool.com is our email address. Sorry, Troy. We we, we had to. We had to. Just <laughs> we admon- still love you, Troy. We still love you. We just had to admonish you. All right, guys. We'll see you a little bit later in the show. What is happening in the European Union, and what does it mean for investors here in the U.S.? We will go around the world of investing with Tim Hansen. That's next. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. The biggest story for international investing this week is the fact that, once again, Greece is on the brink of leaving the EU. 
So, here to help us make sense of what it means for investors is Tim Hansen. For most of the past decade, he has analyzed international markets for The Motley Fool, and he joins me in studio now. Thanks for being here. My pleasure, Chris. Uh, we are. Let me timestamp this because I think that's important because this is one of those situations that is constantly evolving. We are taping this on Thursday afternoon, so that you know by the time this airs on radio stations this weekend, who who knows what will have changed. But at this moment in time, where are we now? You know, the funny thing is, you you, you try to timestamp this, but arguably we could just not timestamp it and say, hey, Greece is in flux. They're probably not going to arrive at a solution. And that would have been that would have been true commentary at any time over what the past five plus years, four or five years. Uh, so you know where are we? Greece has a um, Greece has a payment uh, to make to the IMF on June thirtieth. They currently don't seem to be able to uh, make the payment, so they're asking the EU to release some more of the bailout funds so that they can make that payment and therefore not go into default on their debt obligations. Um, given how long this is drawn out. There are some European member countries who are reluctant to release any additional funds without the Greece government uh, making concessions in terms of how they're going to right-size their balance sheet over the long term, though if they could ever actually do that, who knows? Um, you know, and, and, and this is just a drawn-out process. I think they retired the most recent round of meetings saying they continue to hammer out negotiations. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Ultimately, who knows what's going to happen? I think what will happen is what's been happening the last five years, which is they will um, put a Band-Aid on it and kick the can down the road and without actually solving anything. So Greece will somehow manage to make that payment, but there will be no, there will be no uh, certainty. And depending on who you listen to, there are some analysts out there saying, look, if they end up leaving the EU, this is, you know, this is the first brick in the wall to fall, and the ripple effect is going to be terrible for U.S. investors. And then you also have analysts saying, you know what, this is a self-contained issue, and unless you happen to be a U.S. investor who's who owns Greek debt, uh, you know, or something like that, then you know you're going to be fine. To what extent, if any, do you think? What's going on right now affects the average investor in the United States. You know, probably not very much in the sense that what's driving. You know, this has been one of many uncertainties in the world over the past five years, and you know, I think we're in the midst of one of the longest-running bull markets um, of, of, of history, or certainly of recent history. Um, the market is willing to look the other way on this, and I think it's willing to do so as long as interest rates stay low. And interest rates are probably going to stay low as long as there remains uncertainty in the world. Um, and so you end up in a situation where the market probably just continues its 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 climb, but you know there are real structural weaknesses um, in the global economy certainly that are just being overlooked for whatever reason or another. Do you think when interest rates rise, as they will at some point, and we can go back in time six months, and a lot of people were looking at June as the time when the when the Fed would raise rates in the U.S. or was likely to, and here we are in June, and that's not happening. Um, but when interest rates eventually rise, what then? You know, I think that I mean that's an open question, but one that gets has some particularly gnarly implications. You know, you, you look at the average multiple in the U.S. It's it's relatively high on an average basis. Growth stocks, in particular, you know, Under Armour's multiple I think has expanded from like forty to eighty. Um, and one one argument for why that's happened is is earnings yield, which is just the opposite of PE. And when your earnings yield um, is higher than the interest rate, or, you know, remains some amount higher than the uh, interest rate you would earn on a risk-free security, you continue to bid the stock up. When uh, interest rates were to go up, so the risk-free rate 
improves or just gets bigger, that would imply, if that logic has been what's driven multiple expansion over the past few years, that would imply some pretty rapid multiple contraction in the stock market, which would lead to stocks falling regardless of the underlying performance of the business. Um, that's where, you know, to what magnitude that happens, who knows? But um, that is certainly a, a risk given the way the market's been behaving over the past few years. Recently on the show, we've talked about the online travel space, uh, not just here in the U.S., but Priceline's recent investment in C-Trip. Uh, online travel uh, is something that you've looked at in the past. Do you think that's a good move by Priceline? I mean, this is, uh, as a refresher for uh, listeners who missed our, sh- our show a few weeks ago, Priceline had made a $500 million investment in C-Trip, which is the largest online travel site in China. Uh, that was last year. Then this year, following it up with another two hundred fifty million. I know Priceline's not hurting for cash, but what do you think of that move? Yeah, I think it goes back to the fact that Priceline's not not hurting for cash, and they need to find something to do with it. Uh, I mean, China is that's you, a good problem to have. Yeah, don't I mean, you think as problems go, <laughs> unless you, unless you what do the am wrong I going to do with all this cash? I'm just set this on fire. Um, do you think that's what this is? It's not necessarily setting it on fire, but it is. In the near term, it has the prospects to not deliver very much uh, return, and the reason for that is that you know you, you look at the Chinese online travel market, um, the Chinese online marketplace in general. It's a huge addressable market. You know, you've got um, 1.3 billion people. Uh, more and more, they're coming online every day. You know, they're leapfrogging in terms of mobile technology and some things of that nature. They have pretty good connectivity. Um, uh, particularly in the online commerce space, people are more predisposed to shop online in China. It's, it seems. And so you see this total addressable market that's enormous, and you say, oh, if we can just get a little piece of that, um, it's going to be great. The flip side of that is that there, there are some very savvy competitors trying to get a piece of it, and so the competition is, is, very, is, is borderline irrational in that space. So you have Chunar, which was a subsidiary of Baidu. Um, you have Elong, which was um, invested in by Expedia, which is also a very cash-rich company. Baidu is a cash-rich company. And then Citrit, which is being backed by Priceline, which is throwing cash at them. And, and where is all that cash going? Um, it's going into basically price cutting. Um, you know, none of these companies are as profitable. Or C-Trip has a modest profit margin, but they are dramatically less profitable than they were a few years ago when their business model was more predicated on, on being a call center. Um, Chunar is not profitable and has no plans to be in the near term as they just slash and burn on take rates um, to try to get C-Trip to capitulate. And Elong is struggling as well from the same problem. They're, you know, they're the number three player, so I mean, th- they probably have the grimmest situation of all. You know, and, and ultimately, to me, it doesn't matter how many customers you sign up uh, if you, your take rates are so low that you can't make money on any of them. Um, the interesting rumor in the space was that Chunar and C-Trip were contemplating some sort of partnership or merger. Um, now that, all of a sudden, you, you would have a you go from a, a, a place of irrational competition to a place where you almost got a borderline monopoly, and then that, that potentially gets interesting very fast for, for the companies. But um, it, it remains to be seen how that competitive uh, landscape plays out in China. You know, from my eye, having met all three of those companies, I, I think Chunar in particular thinks that over the long run, they can win because they have the best technology and the best people, and they're willing to, and they're willing to go after C-Trip's profit pool until C-Trip doesn't have you know anything left to stand on. But if C-Trip continues to raise capital from Priceline, that's going to be a very long and, and bloody fight. 
Let's bring it uh, closer to home. Last week on the show, uh, we played the interview that uh, Tom Gardner, our CEO, did with uh, Amy Batinsky, the Chief Marketing Officer at Zillow. That mm-hmm. was at our Motley Fool One event in Seattle. Uh, you were out there, had the chance to uh, not only uh, observe the events in the main hall, but uh, talk to a lot of our members. I'm, I'm curious, uh, as a longtime investor, what stood out to you, whether it was uh, uh, something that emerged in terms of a theme of, of comments or questions from your conversations with members, or just uh, something that you observed in terms of one of the presentations? Yeah, I, I, my colleague Morgan Housel, I thought, gave a wonderful presentation, which is just, you know, which he called, you know, you are here. And it was just showing, you know, where we are in the context of the history of the stock market. And, you know, we are at an all-time high at a point where, um, you know, the bull market has been running for many years now. Um, and, but, you know, if you ask about general sentiment about the economy, it's a little bit more mixed. So there's a strange disconnect between the stock market and um, and the economy. And he further went on to point out just that, you know, from points like this in the, in the stock market, generally speaking, you your likelihood going forward of earning higher than average returns, from a probability standpoint, is lower than it would be than if you were buying at a relative bottom. Um, that sort of is a truism, but it's 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 good context for where we are now. Now, what he showed was that if you extrapolate over very very long periods of time, it doesn't really matter if you buy it at a at a highish point or a, or a lowish point, um, because you'll you'll get the market return. But your near term experience can be very rocky, and what you do during those rocky times can have a big implication on your long term return. So, just to prepare people for the idea that hey, this is where we are in the market. You know, nobody rings a bell at the top. You know, the the headlines before Black uh, Friday didn't tell you that that was coming, um, and so on and so forth. Yeah, that, or Black that, Monday. Rather. That was the maybe my favorite part of his presentation was showing the headlines before Black Friday, um, before the market crash of '29, where where there's yeah. no indication whatsoever that this is coming, and in fact, it was usually the the opposite was the case. There were rosy forecasts. Everything's great. Yeah. So, but just to, to know that that's the case and be prepared for what happens next. Know what, how are you going to act when that happens? You know, know thyself. I think that's an important lesson. You know, we we can make a lot of observations, but no one can predict. If I, you know, if anyone could predict when the market was going to go down, you would not tell anybody, and you would lever up and make <laughs> your bet. But um, you know, the stability begets instability. It's been a very stable period with some unstable things there in the world. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. I thought that was an interesting vibe because a lot of people, I think, were very. Obviously, we're very positive about the last few years. We made a lot of money, um, you know. But what happens next, and how do you react to what happens next? I think is a key question and a key theme. Uh, one of our guests at the event was Jim Sinegal, the co-founder of Costco. Um, I would argue one of the great, if not the great, retail leaders uh, of the last fifty years or so. Um, I know that uh, specialty retail is something that you look at. We've talked before about Williams Sonoma and sort of the the job that that company has done in not just in its stores but through its catalog business as well as online. Um, you put restoration hardware in that same category. It's a good question. I think um, I think I think it's a good time for home for home retailing um, as long as if you have a, if you have a decent you know, set of SKUs and, and an online presence. You know, home numbers are getting better. Home ownership rates are getting a little bit better. Um, you know, new home construction is picking up. Interest rates are still low. I think that's an interesting space to be in. I don't think Restoration Hardware is quite the operator that um, 
Williams-Sonoma is. And obviously Williams-Sonoma has more of a multi-brand approach, which allows them to go after different uh, different price points. And they also do a very bang-up job of inventory management, which is very hard to do in the sort of durable goods space. Um, so I think that's still my, my, my favorite name in that in that sort of sector. But it's a, it's, a, it's a promising hunting ground to be looking in, I think, given the demographic data that's coming out. All right, last thing, and then I'll let you go. Um, we're now at the halfway point of 2015. Um, when you and when you think about the second half of the year, whether it's an industry, a company, or a stock, who do you think needs a hit? Who needs a, a strong second half of 2015? Wow, I mean, you know, I think people are aware of what happened in the Chinese stock market, the mainland Chinese stock market this year. It was running up 100, 200 percent since started to correct. I mean, that's an economy where the fundamentals and the performance of the stock market have really gotten out of whack. Um, they could probably stand. Some good news, um, you know. Australia is something interesting to watch. It's a very levered economy, um, with the mining boom ending and commodity prices coming down. Um, you know, they could probably stand some good news, lest their stock market begin to and their banks begin to feel a little bit hit in that regard. Um, you know, and like I said, interest rates. What happens to interest rates over the next six to twelve months? I think is going to be a big determinant of near-term returns. Um, you know, for the long-term investor, it's really not a question of playing that, but rather just preparing for it, and so that you react the right way when it when it inevitably happens. Have a jar of antacid on hand. Yeah, but I mean, I think you know, I was going back and looking at my records, and I think I, I made a note to myself that <clears throat> people should be, or I should be, a potential idea was to be shorting Treasuries back in 2010 or 11. Um, I don't think I never actually went through with that bet. But if I had, it'd be an enormous losing position. Uh, so, you know, these things can persist. But you know, I, I don't think it. I don't think it's been a losing position to have been prepared for that since 2010 or 11. One of the reasons to be on Twitter is so that you can follow this guy, Tim Hansen. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, sir. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Once again, joining me in studio, Matt Argusinger, Simon Erickson, and Brian Hinman. Guys, before we get to the stocks on our radar, uh, last week we talked in honor of Father's Day. We shared some good advice that we got from our dads, asked the listeners to weigh in, and the emails came pouring in. Radio at fool.com is our email address. The best advice that you got from your father, we got one from Ann Harris in California. When I was heading off to college, my dad said, if you don't know what to major in, then go for engineering. You can always change to something else later, and you won't have to start over. You can't go the other way. My dad was so right, and I am now a flight test engineer at Edwards Air Force Base. From Tobin Anthony in Virginia, punch a bully in the nose, his eyes will tear up. You'll be able to punch him again harder. From Jeff Corcoran in Pennsylvania, my dad's advice, you should date that new girl next door. 40 years and three kids later, I have to say that worked out all right, all although right I was already plotting my strategy anyway. Didn't Winner. have to use Match.com. Yeah. See? <laughs> yeah, see, exactly. That's the old school way. That's right. And finally, from Carol in Hawaii, my father's a doctor. His best advice to me, his only daughter, was always urinate after sex. 
Oh. There we go. Okay. You know? And he's a doctor, so who are we to argue? Boom. Quite with, the spread of responses. Yeah, this. great response. Drop the mic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with that, let's get to the stocks that are on our radar this week. Our man behind the glass, Steve Broido, will hit you with a question. Simon Erickson, you're up first. What are you looking at these days? Well, Chris, disclaimer, this is a volatile small cap flyer that I'm throwing your way this, this week. Uh, the company I'm looking at is called the Rubicon Project. Ticker is R-U-B-I. Uh, these these guys, you know, are based out of California. They run a platform to automate the buying and selling of digital ads online. So when you're loading a website, whether you know this or not, there's a ton of information exchanged about who you are, what your IP address is, what your demographic background is, what your search history is. This is all very valuable to advertisers, and in 80 milliseconds, the Rubicon uh, company is able to match all of that information to give you the best advertisement on the side of the website that you're looking at. So, it's the second largest platform doing this behind Google. They're definitely got my attention right now. Steve, question about the Rubicon project? Is this a privacy time bomb waiting to explode? <laughs> if it's tracking where I'm going, sounds a little creepy. I don't know about your case specifically out there, Steve, but uh, I hope not. I just like the creepiness is now potentially going to be a factor that we we screen for as investors. Matt Argusinger, what are you looking at this week? Sure, I've got Lionsgate Entertainment ticker LGF. I, I've been really looking at entertainment companies lately, uh, in the in, especially in the, the movie studios. Uh, this is the studio behind shows like Mad Men, Orange Is the New Black, uh, movies like the Twilight and Hunger Games series. John Malone just took a stake in them recently, and he's looking at a lot of potential consolidation in the space. Lionsgate's been trying to buy, among others, MGM for many years, uh, and there's rumors that they might actually be going out and buying stars. Uh, so I just see a lot of con- consolidation in the entertainment space. Lionsgate, I think, is going to lead that. And big week in the movie industry when you look at Comcast, oh, parent company of Universal and Jurassic World, and what that's raking in at the box office, and of course, Disney with Pixar's latest Content film. is still king. Steve, question about Lionsgate? Seems like a big, complicated business. How can I follow this at home if I'm a shareholder? Uh, good question. I mean, they, this is a company that, unlike other studios, has a pretty consistent profit stream. So, just follow the profits, follow the cash flow. As long as they keep coming in for Lionsgate, it's doing pretty well. Brian Hinman, what's on your radar? I got a simpler business for you guys. It's Cabela's, uh, a retailer that you may have heard of. Here's what they sell, Steve. Guns, bows, uh, ammo, camo, tents, boats. It's outdoor living. Good, healthy, wholesome outdoor living. What do you got for me? Uh, Well, first, what's the ticker? C-A-B. So, is is this a Bass Pro Shop play? (laughs) So, it's uh, Bass Pro Shops is one of their uh, primary competitors, uh, except the good folks at Cabela's, I think, are cream of the crop and really know their customer, know the industry much better than Bass Pro Shops. Are you a Bass Pro Shop uh, connoisseur, Steve? You know, I drive by them frequently. They, they're they often on a freeway, and they are amazing looking from the highway. They really do look amazing they from do. the highway. looks amazing. Uh, Cabela's, Lionsgate Entertainment, the Rubicon Project, some pretty interesting ideas across the spectrum there, Steve. Any one of those catch your attention? I'd have to go with Lionsgate. I think uh-huh. it's the most compelling right now. Have you seen any of the Hunger Games? movies? I have. Yes, I have. Not a fan, but you like Lions. <laughs> oh, they're solid, though. <laughs> All right. Simon Erickson, Matt Argusinger, Brian Hinman, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. That is going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Producer Matt Greer is on a well-deserved vacation this week, so if the show is terrible, that's why we let Matt go on vacation. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>